We've been looking at the old hymns that were written at the beginning of the Christmas story. And so we, we saw the one from Simeon, from Zechariah, and Mary. And today we, don't, <laughs> we ran out. So we're going to do one. Uh, in German it's called Stille Nacht. Uh, it means uh, silent night. And if you've ever been to a Christmas service and they sing Silent Night, a lot of times they'll tell you the story. And the story, the kind of the abbreviated story is, uh, there's a church in Austria and they had a flood and the organ got broken and so the pastor wrote a song and it was Silent Night. And they sang it for the first time that night. And that's kind of the story, but not all of the story. And so I thought I'd give you all the story and then we're going to look at, uh, from Luke 2, we're going to look at the Christmas story. And then we're going to take communion. But the guy that wrote Silent Night was a dude named Joseph um, Mayer, uh, M-A-H-R, oh, M-O-H-R, Moore, Joseph Moore. He was born in the late 1700s. He was uh, born uh, to uh, a woman who wasn't married. Uh, She, because of that particular society, was fined for having a child out of wedlock. Her fine was quite severe. She couldn't pay it. She was a knitter by trade. And so uh, then as now, knitters don't make a lot of money. And so someone volunteered to pay this fine. Uh, It happened to be the executioner of the town. Um, They didn't really, people didn't like the executioners. Who knew why? Uh, Because they're like whacking people. Anyway, he he pays the fine. He becomes the godfather. But because of that, this little boy named Joseph Moore, now he is stigmatized because his godfather is the executioner. Uh, It's a different world, a different society. He couldn't get into school. He couldn't get into a trade. But he did like to sing. So little Joseph Moore all over town would sing, and one of the the, uh, uh, Catholic bishops heard him and decided to sort of adopt him and brought him in, and he became, eventually, uh, in his mid-twenties, he became a Catholic priest at a church in Obendorf. And guess what the name of the the church was? It it was St. Nicholas uh, Church. Now, he had wanted to write a Christmas song. He, he, they were great with music. This guy, by the way, he figured out how to play the piano, the organ, uh, the guitar, and the violin. By the time he was 12, he was quite good at it. And so this guy was a savant, if you will, with music. And so he, uh, he could play. He wanted to write a Christmas song, but he just couldn't come up with the words. And then one winter... He's sitting at his table, he's studying. Someone comes up, knocks on his door, and they say, we want you, uh, there's a family over the mountain that wants you to come bless their new baby. And so he bundles up. It's a day, it's perfect for this, because it was a day kind of like this, except with lots of snow. And so he bundles up, he walks around the mountain, he gets to this family, he sees this young um, couple with a new baby boy who's wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a crib, And he is overcome with emotion, and on his journey back to to his town, he, in his mind, writes this song, Silent Night. Now, he has a friend by the name of uh, Franz Gruber, not to be confused with Hans Gruber, who was in Die Hard. Uh, uh, (laughs) Different guy, totally different family, I think. So Franz Gruber is the one who wrote the music, Joseph Moore is the one who wrote um, the words. 
And so on this particular Christmas Eve service, they sing Silent Night for the first time. Now, today is very special for me because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of calculating in my mind. The next time there is a Christmas Sunday morning is 11 years from today. Uh, I know some of you now are going to be Googling that, and it's true. Uh, but if you need a second, go ahead. Because if I'm sitting there, it's like, I don't know if that's right. You know, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, 11 years, 19, uh, it'll, be, it'll be 2033 the next time that we have Christmas on a Sunday. So that's 11 years away. There's a lot could happen between now and then. So this might be the last Christmas Sunday that I ever get to kind of lead. And so it's exciting, kind of cool, kind of sad a little bit. But Luke 2, at our family, and so my family, all my kids are here except for Mallory, who's in Switzerland. Uh, we don't even like her. Uh, so all the good kids are here, and, and it's great. And my son-in-law, one of my son-in-laws, and his parents are here. And so we packed a pew. We're Baptist. Uh, and so... Um, when we are together on Christmas morning, we read the Christmas story. So I'm going to do that today a little bit, and I'll talk a little bit about uh, what the story means, and then we'll, we'll kind of close with communion, and then we'll light our candles, okay? So the story begins like this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that, was, that took place while Christ... Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. Powerful people, if you've ever noticed, like to count things. Uh, they will count the number of folks. Um, anytime you're counting people, if people just become a number, then they become, they become less human. And if you think about it, in World War II and the prison camps, uh, the prisoners were tattooed with, their, with a number, they became less than human. They became a number. We do this. We count lots of things. We, if you're looking at somebody famous, we'll, we'll say his net worth or her net worth is this. They own uh, this many properties. And so we, we use numbers to evaluate people. We use numbers to evaluate livestock. It's a funny thing. Uh, if you give your livestock a name, it's different than if you give your livestock a number. Uh, really, your fate, if you're, a, if you're an animal, you can kind of uh, understand what your future fate is going to be just by, am I named Fluffy or am I named 162? I mean, you know, you kind of know what's going to happen if you're 162. You don't make it very long. And so we, we number things. Uh, our cars, I get 29 miles of the gallon. Uh, it goes 0 to 60 in 5.9 seconds. Or whatever. We, we use numbers. And even in our health, we use numbers. My cholesterol is this number. My... Standing heart rate is this number. And so we use these numbers to, to sort of talk about people. Well, this guy, Caesar Augustus, decided that he wanted to see how big his kingdom was. We calculate stuff at church. We, we kind of keep count of who's here and how many people. And one of the great things that we did this year was uh, our church collectively, um, as a church, gave over $65,000 to missions. And I think a lot of the way you can sort of judge how you're doing in life isn't by how much you have, but how much you give. And so Caesar Augustus, he, he wanted to, to know some things. Jesus had a different relationship with numbers. During the Christmas holidays, read John chapter 6. Really interesting. John chapter 6 begins, Jesus has this sermon. Uh, he feeds thousands of people. Uh, everybody is really happy with him. 
Now, typically in today's times, uh, if you're very popular, one of, the, one of your goals is to keep your popularity. Not so much Jesus. So he has this meeting. Thousands of people are fed. Uh, everybody, I'm sure, wants to come back the next day because free food really attracts people. And so he gets, uh, he sends his people ac- across the lake. He walks on the water. He ends up on the other side of the lake. The people follow him, and he teaches another lesson the next day. This lesson is very difficult. talks about total commitment. And the only people that are left are his 12 disciples. And if you were to have a conversation with Jesus during that time, you'd say, hey, Jesus, how was your weekend? You know, well, you know, we had a great, we had 10,000 people this one at one of our meetings. And we had a, uh, you know, a, a, a family dinner and everybody was happy. And then I preached the next day and they weren't so happy. And we went from 10,000 to 12. And that's kind of how Jesus' relationship with numbers went. He was more concerned with commitment and devotion than he was how many people showed up. And so the night that Jesus was born, there were very powerful people counting things. Property and people. And so a little boy born in a manger in a little town called Bethlehem was easily unnoticed. And then a little boy whose parents take him to Egypt because they were afraid, also incredibly unnoticed. And so here is the beginning of the story. Now... Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee. So Nazareth is a town, Galilee is a region, to Judea, a different region, to Bethlehem, that's a town in the region, and Bethlehem is also known as the town of David because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, travel uh, in our time is... Traveling around Christmas, I traveled a little bit yesterday, it wasn't too bad, but you know, around Christmas time is quite difficult. You can imagine in a world where everybody had to travel to the same place to register, that it would be quite difficult to get from one place to the other. And we always see these pictures of Mary riding on a donkey. That's simply speculation. Nobody knows um, how long it took, nobody knows how they traveled. They just know they went from one place to the next, and it was about 60 miles away, pretty far. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in claws, I like the way the King James says, swaddling clothes, and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And I saw this little cartoon. This was why the first night was silent. It's kind of good. It's funny. Okay, Uh, so... um, So maybe adequate preparations weren't made. Who knows? Here's what I know. I have been in the room at the birth of all four of my daughters. Uh, It's supposed to be a bonding thing. (laughs) Whatever. Uh, Some people video. (laughs) We have a word for those people. That's called weird. Uh, Anyway, uh, we didn't video. I mean, I was like, I don't even want to be here. But anyway, there they are. I'm there. And all right, so if you're the dad... I, I'm in the room, Miriam's doing most of the work, uh, and um, I'm coaching, like, way to go, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm thinking to myself, man, you know, I'm, a, I'm about a generation late. I like the whole idea of waiting in a room uh, with a box of cigars. That, to me, sounded really great. And I'm in this room, and these children are born... 
Now, uh, Miriam was like a pioneer woman, the first, first child, Amaris. She took no meds, no meds. Uh, the other three meds, you want to know why? <laughs> because she's brave and smart. Uh, that's why. I, I thought a couple of things. It's like, okay, well, I hope they don't <laughs> drop that little slimy thing. It's kind of uh, the first thing I thought. And, and then, uh, I don't know if, you, if this was you as, as a dad, but for me it was like, okay, well now I have this wave of responsibility. Uh, now, life changes. So with the first one, <laughs> life changed. And with the second one, life changed. And then the third one, and the fourth, life changes. It's like, okay, well, everything is different. And, and there's Mary and Joseph. And, and I have to wonder just a little bit about Mary. Because if you recall, Gabriel's the one who said, hey, you're going to have a baby. But Gabriel didn't say, hey, you're going to have a baby in a stable. And he didn't give the de- little detail of, hey, you're going to have a baby in a stable and you're going to lay it in a manger. And one has to wonder, does, did Mary like think to herself, well, maybe I got this wrong. I mean, this might not be exactly the way things were supposed to go. I don't know a lot about childbirth. I do know that it's very unlikely that that was a silent night. I, I, doubt, I doubt if Mary was very silent. Uh, that baby certainly wasn't silent. Uh, as far as I know, Joseph wasn't silent. He might have been crying. Like, oh my word, i got to take care of this kid now. I don't know how that goes, but I do know this. That was a night, and I think Mary was probably very, I don't know, I would say frightened. I mean, here she is, she has a baby. Look, I, I, if, if I'm her, I'm thinking to myself, man, why did we come here? I've got, I've got a mom, I've got sisters, I've got cousins, I've got people who can help me at home. Because not only are they really, really far away with a baby, now they've got to go a really, really long trip back with a baby. And they don't even go home, they go to Egypt, another place where they don't even know anybody or anything. And then this amazing thing happens. It's almost like validation. Sometimes you make really difficult decisions for the Lord and you need validation. So I'm just going to read this part to you because it's sort of validation. And there were shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. He will, you will find a babe wrapped in clothes, cloths, and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, goodwill toward men. And so now you have introduced into our story shepherds. And they are told of the good news, and they're kind of told, hey, this is, this is what you need to look for. And so it says, when the angels had left them and gone in, back into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. It makes sense. I mean, if you hear about you know, uh, a big sale, you're going to make your way over there. If you hear about something magnificent that has happened, you're going to go there. And so they do. Well, Mary doesn't know they're coming. Joseph doesn't know they're coming. All right, so you have this really young couple with a 
newborn baby in a manger, laying in a manger inside a stable. And all of a sudden, there's a knock on the door. I guess there's a door. Is there a barn door? There's a knock. And then there's a knock. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph, these shepherds, and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. And then we're going to focus on one last verse. Verse 19 says this. Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. It's a great word, the word ponder. It actually comes from a, it's a, a sailing word. Uh, when uh, they would sail, they would drop this um, string with a weight on the bottom to, to figure out how deep something is. Um, so we get the expression, let's get to the bottom of it. Well, it's, it's the same word. Let's ponder it. Let's think about the depth of what has happened just now. So here she is, and she's just come through a traumatic time. You know, childbirth in the first century was incredibly dangerous. It's dangerous today. It was really dangerous then. Many women never made it through childbirth. You read about that account after account in, in Scripture about women who didn't make it. And so Mary gets through this. And she has this baby. And she had to be wondering, good grief, I don't know what this is all about. And now these shepherds show up, and it's affirmation. We need affirmation sometimes. And then she ponders. So for the next couple of minutes, we're going to ponder. Because Jesus came, and he uh, was, was a baby, and he was a brilliant teacher, but he was the Son of God, and he came with a specific purpose in mind. And that is to take our sins away. So we're going to concentrate on that for the next couple of minutes. So if you have your... Uh, communion cup combo. There are two levels to this. If anybody needs one, Chris is coming down. He's going to hand them out. Could you raise your hand if you need one? I'll, I'll go slow. Those of you who know the drill are already started. That's good. Let's see if you can peel back the top. You should get a prize for that, actually, uh, peeling back that top. And now you have the wafer. Let's just hold that just for a second. This baby boy, born on Christmas Day, became a man. He lived a sinless life. He offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. This is what we are pondering as we take communion. And so, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he met with his closest friends, people like you and me. Not perfect people, people like you and me. People who are flawed, who make mistakes, who sometimes stumble, and yet they were Jesus' closest friends. You don't have to be perfect to be a friend of Jesus. And he met with these men and he took the bread and it says he broke it. And he would have raised it high and he would have, said, he would have thanked God, thank you for uh, this gift of bread, something like that. And then he broke it. And he handed it to, the, uh, it to uh, them. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. 
As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So this is what we're going to do today. We're remembering the sacrifice of Christ when we take the bread. Let's do it now. Now, if you're dexterous enough to peel back this second layer, and if your neighbor needs help, you should help them. That would be good. The Bible says that in the same way, Jesus took the cup. And again, he would have raised it high and he would have said, thank you, Lord, for the fruit of the vine that you've given to us today. And he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Covenant is an agreement. When we become followers of Jesus, it is an agreement. We're in agreement. He agrees to take away our sins. We agree to live for him. We don't do it perfectly. Nobody does. But we agree that we are going to be his followers. And so he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's do that now. My friend Josiah is going to come around. He's going to light your candle. I didn't get a candle, but I can come get one. We're going to light them on the end. I'm going to tell you a little bit about light. So try to focus on two things at once if you can't. I was driving to work last week, and I was thinking to myself, um, there's a lot of light metaphor in Scripture, if you think about it. So Isaiah prophesied about this Messiah that was coming, and he said, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And then we just saw the angels who came to proclaim Jesus to the shepherd. It says that they were, there was um, the glory of the Lord shone around them. There was a brightness to them. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he said, you are the light of the world. And so we light candles because it is an opportunity for us to remind ourselves that Jesus is the light of the world and that we are the light of the world. So let's stand up. Ooh. We're going to sing Silent Night. Chris, are there words to that? I hope. Great. I can get you started with Silent Night, Holy Night, then I'm lost. Oh, there we go. All right, so let me uh, offer you a blessing, and then we're going to sing Silent Night, and we're going to go and continue to celebrate the birth of Christ. Thank you for coming today, because it means, it means something to us. Uh, Christmas is special. We celebrate because it was the first step in our salvation. And so while the night may not have been incredibly silent, it was holy. So my prayer for you, may the Lord today give you a sense of wonder 
and amazement at our friend and our Savior, Jesus Christ.